If you would, turn in your uh, scriptures to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, either the Pew Bible or maybe the scriptures you brought with you. This will be the last uh, psalm that we look at uh, since summer is, at least in my mind, is over. School's back and so summer's kind of over. Next week we'll go back to our study on the book of Acts. And so be uh, uh, looking forward to that. (laughs) Hey y'all, you all can go to uh, Sunday school or Sunday church. Follow Mr. Stacy. He'll give you a quarter. I hope you have enjoyed uh, our look at the Psalms over the summer. Um, Hopefully it's been profitable as you think about your prayer life and as you think about uh, moving closer uh, to God. Uh, Something else about the Psalms I appreciate is just how they model the Christian life to us. uh, Because you have uh, individuals with great honesty uh, saying, this is what I struggle with. This is what's difficult. And uh, at the end, you see how they are going to live by faith. Uh, they're reassured uh, in their time of prayer that God is going to be there for them, that they can trust him. And Psalm 27, I think, is going to help us uh, along those lines uh, as well. But before we read it, just to, uh, to say this, to kind of prepare our um, context a little bit, uh, I bet most of you would say that your lives are stressful, or at least you have moments of stress in your lives. And I don't doubt that. We all have things that we have to... Uh, push through things that are difficult, uh, but I, I'm willing to say that your life is probably not as stressful if you were running a nation, if you were running a country, if you had the power to raise taxes, uh, your life is pretty stressful. David is the author of this psalm for us, and he's running a nation, and there's a lot on his plate. Uh, for example, he's got the Philistines uh, bordering Israel, and it seems like all the time, There's battles back and forth. There's military issues. They come in and they invade or they attack and they've got to defend themselves. They're defeated, they go home, and then it seems to happen again and again. Personally, think about David's uh, personal or family life. Uh, We all have families and we all have stuff going on. But I'm willing to bet it doesn't compare uh, to David. He was married to many wives and has many children. Uh, He had one son uh, who took advantage of one of his uh, other daughters, one of David's other daughters. And by take advantage, I mean that uh, he raped her. Uh, He had another son who knew that this happened and plotted a way to kill, basically, his brother. The same brother, Absalom, who killed his brother, uh, later on uh, figured out a way to take uh, political power and take the throne away from Uh, his father, David, for a time. And so if you think your life, family life, is stressful and disappointing and frustrating, uh, think about King uh, David and his life and all that he had to deal with. Psalm 27 is, as I said, is written by him. And as we read this, I want you to to hear how does David um, look for relief in the midst of his fears, in the midst of his disappointment. Uh, What does David uh, do? What's the key? Uh, What's his strategy, so to speak? So as you're able, let's stand and let's hear God's word. Psalm chapter 27. The title of this song is Of David, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, 
It is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject or forsake me, God my Savior. Verse 10, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in the straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses, false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and he gives it to us because he loves us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we pray in these moments that the words and the prayer of David here would find a place in our own hearts and our own minds, that his desires would become our desires, and that you would get all the glory and all the honor. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Let me tell you about a gentleman named uh, Roy. Roy is a pastor. Uh, He's been pastoring church for a number of years, and his church is at a stage of life, so to speak, where they want to move. They want to purchase some different property and be in a different location. And so this is a big hurdle, particularly financially, to make this happen. And Roy has said to his congregation, don't worry, God God has got this. He's going to provide for us. He's going to do something. And so Roy begins to, to reach out to some folks, and he finds a mortgage consultant, talks to him, expresses his needs and, and what's going on with their church. The consultant says, we got this. This is going to work out. It gives Roy all these papers to sign, and um, time goes by, and they get the money that they need. They buy the, the property that they've been looking at, and uh, they build on it. They even develop a school on it. And things are going great for about a year or a little bit more so. And then Roy one day gets a, a call from the FBI at church. I don't know about you, but that's, that's not a good thing, okay? They call him up and they say, you know what? Uh, you are, uh, have been involved with your mortgage consultant who's cooked the books, who's done all the various illegal stuff, and because your signature is on all, this, all these paperwork, uh, you're going to be held accountable for these things as well. And Roy gets a, gets a lawyer, and they proceed to go through all the, the things that they need to do there in court. And the lawyer said to him, uh, towards the end of it, he says, don't worry about this. You're not going to see any jail time. And so Roy is feeling pretty confident. So they go in the last part of the trial, go before the judge. And the judge looks at him and he says, Pastor, I'm sorry, but I've got to make an example of you. And I've got to give you 15 months in jail. Roy is just devastated, as you would expect. 
And people come up to him to try and comfort him. And he said all along, you know, you know, it's all right. God has a plan. God has a plan. But inside he believes that. But inside he's thinking, too, what in the world is going on? Uh, I need more than uh, God has a plan to comfort me and to bring me through this time, bring me through this process. And maybe you've been in a position in your life where you need more than God has a plan, uh, that God's going to work things out. Uh, You need something more to to strengthen you and support you through this difficulty, through this this trial that you're experiencing. You think about your marriage. Maybe you've hit a, a hard spot there and it's just difficult and you just need more than God has a plan. You think about your children and the decisions that they're making, the choices that they're making and how things are working out there, and you wonder. You think about your health, and you think you need more than God has a plan uh, to give you comfort and hope and confidence. You know, there's sometimes in our lives where we'll see people in a gathering like this and see people in the hallway, and we'll say to one another, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? And we'll say, I'm okay, or things are going great. And we just kind of move on. But if you find a close friend or if you have a close friend and they ask you that question at the right time in the right place, you know, how are you doing? You'll probably get more than, you know, things are fine. You may find yourself opening up and discussing things that you're scared about, things that you're disappointed with, things you're fearful of that that may happen. You may not use the word fear because fear sometimes gets expressed by worry or anxiety. We're fearful sometimes when we're passive aggressive with one another. Uh, When we are um, moving away and trying to distance ourselves from from people, when we want to escape from things, it's because we are fearful. Or when we're defensive, Uh, somebody says to us to try that's constructive and it's criticism, but we're defensive about things. It's because there's a fear that's kind of taken over our hearts and our minds and our lives that's really driving us. David is an individual who has experienced fear. He knows what it is to be fearful. He knows what it means to be deeply disappointed. And I think he gives us more than God has a plan. Does God have a plan? Yes, he has a plan. I'm not denying that. I'm not pushing back against that. But sometimes our hearts and our lives and our faith needs more than God has a plan. And Psalm 27, I think, helps us understand that and to give us more. And I think what David is going to hold out for us when we're fearing, fearful and we're disappointed, he's holding out to us the presence of the Lord, the power of God's presence in our lives. And to unpack that and make the connection, how does that help me in my fear and my disappointed disappointment, I want to think about three things. I want to think about the confidence of God's presence, the importance of God's presence, and the fuel for God's presence, okay? Confidence, importance, and fuel. The first one, the confidence of God's presence. And I can spend a lot of time on this one, but uh, we need to hit it because it builds. Verse 1, David makes a declaration. Uh, It almost reads as as a creed or a confession of this is what he believes. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You can't help but see this is a statement of what? Of great confidence, of great boldness. God, you are this for me. You are light, your salvation, your refuge. You are all these things for me. They all communicate a, a present protection, 
that David feels and knows and he's resting in. To go through these things real briefly, God is our light. I think God is our light in this context means that God is, is joy. The opposite of light is, is darkness, is fear, uncertainty, danger. God as a light communicates something the opposite of that. Joy, uh, truth, understanding, safety. Uh, James Boyce is, is quick to comment, this is the only place in the Old Testament where God is described as light, where it says that God is light, the only place that we see it. And certainly it's meant to, to introduce to us that God is a light in our lives and that he is shining out all the darkness. He's bringing us truth, reality. This is what is true and what you can depend upon. God is salvation. When we hear salvation, certainly we think eternal life, uh, going to heaven. Yes, it does include that. But salvation in the sense of, God, you can rescue me and you will rescue me in my present circumstance, in my present situation. You will be there for me. God is a stronghold, refuge. David has all these enemies. Maybe they're political enemies. Maybe they're military enemies from foreign nations. And David says, you're my refuge. I find safety in you. There's protection there for me with you. And so think about all these three things like this. God is light in the sense that he wants to give you and has spiritual understanding for you. That his scriptures and his light is able to communicate to you, this is what's happening to you in this place, in this situation. God is salvation in the sense that he's promised deliverance. Think about maybe how the New Testament describes this kind of salvation. Certainly eternal salvation like that. But Romans 8 kind of salvation. That God works all things for the good of those who love him. That he knows your circumstances and he's orchestrating his good in the midst of what you're experiencing. And of course, God is a stronghold. God is a spiritual refuge for you. That you can bring your hearts to him. You can bring your honesty to him. You lay it all before him and you can find him as a refuge. No matter who you are, what you've done, or what you haven't done, because of Christ there's great refuge Now, some of you sit here and you hear that and you think about your fears and your disappointments on one side. And you think about uh, what David articulates here, the confidence he articulates, and you think, that would be great. I would love to know God like that as my light, as my salvation, as my stronghold or my refuge. I'd love to experience that, but I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that looks like practically in my life to do that. Well, turn your gaze or turn your eyes to verse 4. I think verse 4 is the, the, the key or the heart of this psalm, so to speak. And I think it reveals to us David's strategy for dealing with fear and disappointment. Verse 4, I'll read it again. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. When I read verse 4, don't think that David is saying, I just want to go to church all the time and I want to escape from my everyday problems. I just want to run away and just hide here. That's not what he is communicating. What he's saying rather is, I want to be preoccupied with God. I want to find him as my refuge like this. I want to gaze upon all that he is. The temple is the place where God reveals himself to his people. And God, David is saying, I want to experience the presence of my presence of God in my life, just as though I was in the temple, just as though I was there worshiping him. 
That key word there, gaze. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. When you gaze at something, what are you doing? You're saying, I can't, you're saying this holds my attention. I can't get enough of this. I want to see it more and more. I want it to be impressed upon my mind and my heart. I want to remember it. I don't want to lose track of it. I want to keep it. When I was a teenager, I was learning the game of golf. My grandfather played, my father played, my uncle played, and they gave me all kinds of tips and all kinds of helps. But what really helped at the same time was being a caddy. I was trying to earn some money as a teenager while I was trying to learn the game of golf. And so being a caddy really helped. It helped in a lot of ways to say to me, don't do this, don't play like this, and don't do these kinds of things. But I remember there was one uh, gentleman that was a part of the, the country club where I caddied at, and he was basically the best golfer in the country club because he kept winning the, the uh, club championship all the time. And every once in a while, I would see him out on the golf course, and I would just love just to watch him. If he was on the driving range or out on the golf course, just to watch him swing the golf club, to watch his technique, to watch his tempo, all the little things that he did because I wanted that impressed upon my mind. I wanted to swing the club like that. I wanted to play like him, and so I would watch him. David wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He wants that impressed firmly on his mind to remember that. He wants to know the presence of the Lord. You think about how the Bible talks about the presence of the Lord. It talks about it in in a broad and general way. That God is present everywhere at the same time. He's present here now. He's present in Cuba. He's present in Hawaii. He's present in, in Russia. And he's present on the moon. He's present in the galaxies everywhere at the same time. Can we perfectly understand that and and articulate with great reason how that is? We can't, but it's true. He's present everywhere because he's God. But the Bible also talks about the presence of the Lord in the sense of his special presence. His revealed presence to us. Where God's glory is, is impressed upon our hearts and our minds and we see him for who he really is. It's the, the, the revelation of the presence of God when the things that we think are important no longer become important to us because we see that God is all important and all real and all glorious. Our hearts are humbled. Our hearts are, are softened. We become teachable. We're welcoming that we want to see more and more of it. It's that special presence of God, the special revelation of God's glory or, or seeing of God's glory for all that he is. Let me read to you something from Jonathan Edwards, a pastor theologian from the 18th century. And he talks about the experience of the presence of God like this. He says there's a difference between having an opinion of God, that God is holy and gracious, and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his own mind. Meaning it's this. It's one thing to be told by your parents maybe that honey is really sweet and it tastes really good. But it's another thing to taste that honey for yourself. To experience that sweetness on your own. It's one thing to know about God. To know uh, different doctrines and different truths of what the scripture says. But it's another thing to experience God. It's another thing to actually know him. It's another thing to know that he is glorious, that he is righteous, that he is holy. 
beyond what you may be learning in Sunday school, for example, but to actually know him, to actually experience him. Is that true in your life? Have you seen that? Have you experienced God like that? David talks about gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. David's talking about worship. I want to worship him. I want to praise him. I want my heart to be inflamed like that for him. Not in the sense where I just come to church and I sing the hymn and I move on with my life, but I want my heart and my life to be gripped by him. Think of the different ways that we respond to him. There's repentance, there's, there's confession. Uh, I, I, I see my sin and God, I, would you forgive me for that? Or sometimes we respond to God with prayer requests. God, this situation is horrible. Will you change it? Will you rescue me? Will you fix it? Will you do something? Or sometimes we express thanksgiving. God, thank you that you did this in my life. But praise is entirely different. Worship or adoration is entirely different. Those things that I just listed, repentance, supplication, or thanksgiving, those have to do with uh, how, what God has done for us, so to speak. But praise is different in the sense that we worship him because he's God. Simply for who he is in and of himself. We worship him. We know him. We seek his face. And that's what David wants. That's what David is seeking. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord. Verse 4 is David's strategy for dealing with fear and disappointment in his life. That's what he, that's what he does. That's what he plans. That's what he wants to see happen. To respond to all the fear and all the bad stuff that's happening in his life. And you think, well, okay, I can see why praise is a good thing and worship is a good thing and maybe tasting that the Lord is good. I see that. But what's the connection between that and dealing with my fear and my disappointments? How do those two things go together? They work like this. David is saying, God, I want you to be the most important thing in my life. Why do you fear or why do you have disappointments? It's because the things that you value the most may be taken from you. Your health, your job, a relationship, whatever it is, you fear that that may be taken from you. That's threatened to you. And David is saying, God, I want you to be the most important thing in my life. And if I lose the other things, as important, as good as they are, that's okay. That'll hurt. That'll sting. I'll be very sad about it. But at the end of the day, I have no reason to fear or go into a tailspin in deep disappointment because I have you, because you're my refuge, because you're my stronghold, because you're my light, because you are my salvation. I want to know you like that. I want to experience, I want to experience you like that. Again, you hear that and you think that would be great. And there have been moments in my life where God has been that utmost person but I'm just not sure I have the, the, the ability to sustain that. It's, it's nice when I'm here at these moments in church and the, and the, the, the music is, is really striking my heart and the prayers are good and maybe even the preacher gets something right. But I don't know if I can sustain that. I don't know if I can sustain this kind of where God is, is overwhelming to me, where I'm taking in and he is satisfying, he's enough for me. Let's think about lastly the fuel for God's presence in our lives is say a couple of things. One, this doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you can go home and, and put in a good couple hours of Bible reading and your life is going to completely change where you're always exposed to this and you're a completely different person. It takes time. It's not, it's not a quick fix. 
nor can we control it. We can't control how God reveals himself to us necessarily. But there are things that we can do because we're not completely passive. There are things that we can do to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive and to be on the lookout and to know his overwhelming presence in our lives. I'm going to give you three. Two I'm going to talk about briefly, and, and the third I'll talk about in a little bit more detail, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer. First, the fuel for adoration is humility. The fuel for adoration is humility. In verse 7, David realizes he needs God to be gracious to him. He says, be merciful to me and answer me. In verse 9, David asks that God not turn away his anger or hide his face. He knows the reality of his heart. He knows who he really is. He's not going before the Lord trying to fake it, trying to put on a good face and say everything, you know, I'm doing the right things. He knows his sin. He knows where he's disappointed people. He knows where he's failed to believe God fully in the way that he really should. And he goes to him with his honesty and he goes to him with great humility. The next thing is the fuel for adoration is God and his promises. The fuel for our adoration of God and worship of him is his promises. Verse 9, God has been his helper in the past. This is a man who's been on the run from King Saul. When David was promised the throne, on the run, and God was always his refuge. David says he can trust God more than his own parents. Can you imagine being able to say that? Verse 13, David says that, that God, does not want, God does want to show us goodness in this life. Do you believe that promise? That God actually wants to show you goodness. That he has good things for you, even in the midst of your struggle. Are we willing to believe that? Even if it's not the good things that we think would be ultimate and good for us. Meditate on those promises. Spend some time in those promises. And your heart's going to change. You're going to want to worship. You're going to have good reason to worship God in your own life. The last one, and we'll spend a little time on this and we'll close in prayer. The fuel for adoration is teachability. The fuel for adoration is teachability. Verse 11 and verse 8. Verse 11 says, Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in the straight path because of my oppressors. And then going on in verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Seek in the sense of, God, I want to find your will. I want to find you. I want to find your truth. I'm looking, more than, I'm looking to you for more than comfort, more than help, but I need your will. I need your life in my own. I want your direction. He prays these things in the sense of, God, protect me from danger. Protect me from the... The, uh, the stupid decisions that I make, the stupid responses I make that I may make to other people. Teach me your ways. Show me your truth. What does that have to do with adoration? What does seeking God's direction, God's will, have to do with praise and adoration in our own lives? What's the connection? Well, think about it like this. David is saying, I want to know you personally. What you value, what you hold to be truth, what your hopes, your vision for this world and for my life, I want those things to be true of me. I want those things to be real in my own life. I want to know you personally like that. But still, what does that have to do with with adoration? Well, think about it like this. How does God teach you his will? How does God reveal himself to you? 
Well, he does it through Scripture. He does it through his word. His revealed word to us. He's speaking to you. He has information for you personally. And there's two ways that you can read the Bible. And both are important. You can read the Bible informative and formative. There's informative Bible reading and there's formative Bible reading. Both are important and they both build upon one another. Informative Bible reading is asking questions. Who wrote this? When did he say it? What was the context of this? Uh, why would he say this? Uh, what's going, God going to do? All the, the who, what, why, where kind of questions that we bring to the text. We're looking for information. We're looking for just what, is it, what does it mean? But during formative Bible reading, it's different. Instead of asking the Bible questions, we're allowing the Bible to ask us questions about our own lives and our own hearts and what we're going through. We know we're, doing, we're experiencing formative Bible reading when we say things like, that's me. It, it, that is totally what I've been doing. Would you forgive me? Or we say things like, I need this in my heart, my life. This is what I've been looking for. This is the truth that my heart has been looking to get traction on. It's forming us. It's, it's shaping us. We're allowing it to ask us questions. Informative Bible reading is tons of data, tons of information. It can come very fast. Formative Bible reading is slow. It takes time. We're asking ourselves questions. We're allowing the Bible to ask us honest questions. And we come to it with a sense of integrity in our lives and we say, yes, no, I need to believe that. We ask and think about questions like this of a text. What would my life be like if I actually believed that promise? What would my life be like? What example is this author setting for me? What do I need to change? What do I need to confess? What do I need to believe? What do I need to trust God for? How do I need to apply this to my life? How should I be thinking? If this passage is true, how should I be thinking about my friend, my coworker, my spouse, my children? It's forming us. It's, it's shaping us. It's changing us. And David is saying, I want to read the Bible like this with a sense of teachability because I want to know God personally. And the more I know him personally, the more I'm going to want to worship him. And the more I want to worship him, the more I experience him, the greater fear of the Lord I'm going to have. The greater weightiness of God is going to be in my life. And the things I fear, things I'm upset about, the things I'm disappointed with, there may be the feel of that in my life, but it's not consuming. It's not the ultimate fear that I have. Disappointment doesn't drag me down because God is with me. He is my refuge He is my strength. Do you want to experience God like this? Do you want to know him? To really know him? Beyond coming to church. But do you want to see him change your life? To change your values? To change your heart? To move you out of your your apathy or your disappointment or your anger? Do you want him to change you? Jesus has come to die to bring you change. To bring more than just forgiveness, but he wants to change you. He wants to work his good in your life and in your heart. The question for us is, are we willing to taste and see that the Lord really is good? As you pray with me. Father God, we come to you. 
And we want to be freed of our fear and our disappointments. We want to know you more fully, more wholeheartedly. We want to embrace you as you really are. We know that we can't do that on our own, but we need your supernatural grace. We need your spirit willing and working in our lives. We need hearts that are willing to surrender and submit and confess and be honest. This kind of experience doesn't happen overnight, but it comes as we seek to be faithful to you in all of our brokenness, in all of our failings. But we know that you love us with an unconditional, always and forever love, that nothing we could do could break that relationship. There's nothing that we could do that would disappoint you and turn your face away from us because you have given us a Savior, perfect in righteous, righteousness and holiness, perfect in all that he has done for us. And we simply rest in him and ask that you would enlarge our hearts for more of you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.